you got a Bible, you can find the book of Hosea. Basically, it's in the Old Testament, and it's between the book of Daniel and the book of Joel. And we won't judge you if you have to look up the page number. It's a hard one to find. As we dive into this, first of all, thank you for your grace and patience in us telling you that we were going to dive into American gods and then calling an audible. Uh, frankly, that happens fairly frequently around here just because we really do want to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The worst thing that could happen in this church would be for us to start to behave and act in such a way that would actually reduce Jesus to just sort of a figurehead in our church. We don't want to do that. We, we really believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus is alive and he is our senior pastor. And as we prayed and as we prepped for American gods, we were so fired up about that. And we still are, and we're still going to do it starting the week after Easter. But what we really felt was that the spirit of God wanted us to do some deep heart work in the book of Hosea to even get us ready for that. So today we're diving in the book of Hosea, and I'm going to read a couple of verses and talk about the context of this crazy book. Starting in verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So we dive into this book. We got to start with the context because the context of this book is radically different than our context in OKC. This is a book that took place somewhere during the 8th century BC, 8th century BC. And in this particular moment in the history of Israel, a couple of things are going on that are really important and that are going to frame up what God's saying in this book. The first thing you need to know is that the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah, those kingdoms have divided and there's a fracturing that's taken place in the 12 tribes of Israel. And in this cultural moment, Hosea is hearing from God in a time in which a guy named Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. Jeroboam II. He's been king for a really long time. And in this particular moment, there seems to be a real sense of prosperity and well-being in Israel. The southern kingdom also has a long-term king. Judah is ruled by a guy named Uzziah. Uzziah. So you've got Jeroboam II in the north. You've got Uzziah in the south. And what's happening in this moment is the external enemies against Israel that have been nations like the Assyrians and other empires that have been rising and falling and threatening the health of Israel, those nations are kind of chilling out in this particular cultural moment. And there's a lot of money. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of prosperity. It seems to be that both kingdoms are fairly stable and nobody has any idea that within one generation of the writing of this book, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be extinct after the invasion of the Assyrians. Everything's about to change. People have no idea that all of the blessings and all of the prosperity that they're taking for granted is actually not in their cultural moment a sign of their spiritual health. It's actually, it's actually lulling them into a sense of false security. Now, it's really difficult to try to put ourselves in a culture that is not only agrarian, which we can't relate to, but it's also a culture that if you go back to it, is full of different languages and different names and different customs. Like there seems to be almost zero in common with Oklahoma City or Edmonds 
and eighth century Israel and Judea. There's not a lot in common. We don't talk the same. We don't dress the same. We don't do the same things for entertainment. And yet, here's what you're gonna find over the next several weeks. What Hosea is doing in this book is he's actually showing us that there are divine and human realities. There's things about God and there's things about us that no matter your culture, your background, your language, your prosperity, or your lack of prosperity, you have to reckon with if you want to come to terms with reality. What Hosea is doing in this book is a couple of things that are really profound. First of all, throughout the course of the next eight weeks, Hosea is going to hold up a mirror and he's going to invite those of us that are courageous enough to do it, to look into the mirror, to get a real glimpse of what's going on inside of our hearts and souls. Now, that may not sound like a big deal. Uh, You may think that together, corporately, we have a pretty good sense of self-awareness. I would tend to argue with that. And I would say something I know about you because I know it about me is that the only people, the only people or person that we're better at tricking than others is usually ourselves and our immediate family. We are masters of portraying to the world an ideal self the self you want to be, the self you pretend to be, the image that you craft. Like we're just really good at image management. We all do a lot of personal PR, right? And we all portray, we all portray ourselves in ways that are not congruent with what's actually happening in the deeper movements of our heart and soul. And what Hosea is going to do for the next several weeks is he's actually going to say, hey, be brave for just a minute Have the guts to look into the mirror and not pretend to be someone you're not. Have the courage, have the guts, have the tenacity to actually take a deep look at yourself. He's going to show us that there's things that run really deep in us that really need an answer. There's things that we're going to, to try to name us and fix us and heal us and save us that are actually not leading us to a deeper, more beautiful life. They're actually killing us. This is kind of what prophets do. They're, they're kind of kingdom agitators. Prophets rock the boat. Prophets ask questions that we don't want anybody to ask. And Hosea is going to say with a lot of courage, hey, take a second and look in the mirror and let's talk about who we really are. Let's talk about how we're really wired. At the same time, he's not only going to hold up a mirror so that we can look at ourselves. he's going to do what all prophets do. He's going to hold up a telescope for us to look at God. He wants us to not only get a better sense of who we are, but through the course of this book, he wants us to see God as God really is. I just say the snapshot of God in the book of Hosea is one of the most raw and difficult snapshots to look at in the entirety of scripture. Hosea Hosea is a really vulnerable book, not just for Hosea, but it might be the most vulnerable book in the Bible for God himself. God in the book of Hosea is going to challenge the ways in which we create a one-dimensional caricature of God based on our image instead of really seeing God as he is. He's going to challenge moralistic religious notions of God that portray God simply as the cosmic cop that cares nothing except for the set of arbitrary rules that he put in place so that he would have an excuse to bash your brains in if you screwed him up. He's going to challenge that notion. He's going to challenge the notion of a God who is all powerful to the exclusion of him being able to be hurt. 
the book of Hosea is gonna reveal that God is not, as we often project him to be, God is not the same as the pastor that let you down in the past. God is not the same as the husband that walked out on you. God's not the same as the dad that was absent. God's really different than that. And the depths of God's soul are so deep and so beautiful. And the only way to get even close to him is to actually ask a question. What is it that actually hurts God? What does God long for? When God's heart aches, why does his heart ache? The book of Hosea, we're gonna get an intimate snapshot of that God. And those two things together, like a real picture of who we are, uh, a courageous glimpse into the mirror so that we can get a better grid for what's going on in our heads and our hearts and an honest snapshot of God that's not about making God in our image, but just letting God be who he is. If he is real and is ultimate reality, you don't get to vote on who he is. You can love him, you can hate him, you can reject him or you can run to him. You just can't create him based on your own desires and wants. As those two things come together, a snapshot of God and a real glimpse into our own hearts, what happens through the course of this book is really profound and really transformative. John Calvin, who wrote a book called The Institutes when he was like in his 20s, which means that we're all failures. Um, (laughs) Calvin starts out the institutes with something really profound that relates to this idea. Here's what he writes. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Yes. Like what could be more important for you and for me than actually living in reality? What could be more important than living in reality? And what could be more essential to reality than true knowledge of yourself and true knowledge of your creator? Hosea is going to be a journey into looking at God and looking at ourself and not everything that we see is going to be pleasant or easy. Now, what's the big story? What's the story of this book? What's happening in Hosea? The storyline is summed up in shocking honesty in verses two and three. Here's what it says. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is shocking. This is in your face. He doesn't want you to miss what this book is about. He uses the word whoredom three times in this text. In the original Hebrew, the word whoredom is actually used four times. This is Hosea in our face saying, this is a story that's about me and Gomer that's really about us and God. This is a story about betrayal and love, dreams and broken dreams, longing, desire. This is a story about romance and it happens to be a tragic romance. Hosea is commanded by God to marry and love a prostitute who has no desire to stop prostituting. 
He's commanded to love and marry a prostitute who has no desire to to turn from infidelity to fidelity. God asks Hosea, this prophet, to tell a story with his life. And the story God wants to tell through Hosea's life is about the pain of betrayal. It's about the loss of a dream. It's about having a heart that gets smashed repeatedly. God tells Hosea that his unique prophetic call was to love and to keep loving, to pursue and to keep pursuing, to forgive and to keep forgiving, to suffer and to keep suffering, to have his heart smashed and to allow his heart to be smashed again in his love for his wife. Gomer in this story is not a prostitute like a lot of the prostitutes we read about in the Bible who are prostitutes out of desperation. In fact, in Jesus's own family line, there are prostitutes. Some of the mothers of Jesus in his lineage were prostitutes. And they were prostitutes that didn't know how else to make ends meet or to keep a roof over their heads or feed their babies. Uh, they were prostitutes that were broken and needed redemption, but Gomer's something altogether different. Gomer's a prostitute that doesn't have to sell her body for food or for shelter. She's just hardwired for it. Gomer's a prostitute that has a man that loves her and wants to be her friend and her lover, but her heart is hardwired for running to other lovers. Gomer is in this story because this is a love story, but it's a tragic love story. It's a heartbreaking love story. It's an absurd love story. And it's a story that's really about God and his people. Hosea and Gomer are not the center of this tale. God and his people are the center of this tale. God's people in the book of Hosea cheat on God repeatedly with Baal. Baal was an ancient Canaanite fertility God. This was an agrarian culture and your prosperity and your well-being was connected to the ground bearing fruit. It was connected to rain. It was connected to grain sprouting. If the fields didn't bear fruit, your family would starve to death. And all the Canaanite peoples knew that their lives and their livelihood were connected to the land. So they worshiped this God named Baal, who was this fertility God that promised if you worshiped him with sex and with drink and with sacrifices, then he would actually cause fruitfulness to come to your lands. What's happened over time is the children of Israel have gone after Baal in rejection of Yahweh. They've turned on Yahweh to Baal and they've taken the practices of worshiping Baal and they've mixed them with the practices of worshiping Yahweh. And what God's going to say in this book is that it's not just idolatry as a religious concept, it's actually infidelity. It's that they've turned from their husband, from their love, from their covenant, and they've broken their vows repeatedly in their love affair with Baal, who actually isn't a God and who actually doesn't provide anything all the while God is giving them everything. In the book of Hosea, the people of God cheat on God with money. 
This is a prosperous moment. And they go to money. They go to prosperity thinking that prosperity and money can answer the deepest questions about what it means to be human, what it means to live a secure life, a happy life, a healthy life. They love money in the book of Hosea. This is a book that's about the people of God cheating on God with sex. Sex is actually not a dirty thing. Sex was the creation and invention of God. Uh, It was a good gift that God gave humanity. Yet the people of Israel in this book are going to take the gift of sex and they're going to pervert the gift of sex and they're going to pursue sex without the beautiful boundaries of covenant and fidelity that sustain it and nurture it as a gift. This is a book about people cheating on God with politics politics. This is a book with a really clear political thread that runs from the beginning to the end. They're trusting in their kings for their security and their future. And not only are they trusting on their kings, Uzziah and Jeroboam II, they're trusting in foreign kings. They've hoped in Israel and they've hoped in Assyria instead of hoping in God. And God's going to say that that actually is adultery to put your ultimate hope in anything or anyone other than him. And most tragically, perhaps, is that this is a book about them cheating on God repeatedly with dead, man-centered religion. The people of Israel in this cultural moment look really religious. They pray. They make sacrifices. They keep God's feast. You would look at these people and you would say, wow, uh, these folks are really pious. They're really spiritual. They're really committed to all the forms of religion in Israel. But God's going to say, hey, you worship me with your mouth, but your heart has no affection for me. You attend all the festivals and rituals and you make all the sacrifices, but you don't love me. God's going to tell his people in this book that they're actually cheating on him with their dead, empty forms of religion. Now, why is this the story of this book? Well, here's what God's going to tell us throughout the course of this journey. He's going to tell us that sin isn't about breaking arbitrary rules or codes. In this cultural moment in the Midwest, it's so easy to think that sin is just a made-up list of things that don't really matter or that sin, the concept of sin is just about human repression, uh, sexual repression. It's just about taking joy and delight from another person. It's about being prudish. What God wants us to see in this book is that in God's view, sin is not a list of arbitrary rules. Sin is actually connected to infidelity. Sin, from God's perspective, is a posture of the heart and a pattern of action that's rooted in twisted love. It's rooted in finding our affections and our desires aimed at things, sometimes really good things, and treating even really good things like they're God things. This book is about a relationship between God and his people that isn't cool or removed. It isn't aloof. This book is about an intimate relationship that God is going to describe as a marriage. This is a book about God's heart for his people, which is a heart that burns with desire and affection and covenant faithfulness. At the end of the day, God doesn't want empty ritual from his people. He wants all of them. He wants their hearts. He wants their minds. He wants every bit of them 
Because at the end of the day, the Bible's not a list of arbitrary commandments or rules. At the end of the day, the Bible is a romance. It's a romance. Now, true, it includes highs and lows and tragedies and commands. It includes stories and histories. But from the beginning to the end, this book that Christians regard as sacred and inspired by God, from beginning to end, this book is about the romance between God and his people and the constant and repeated infidelity of his people as they run from him and as he runs toward them in faithfulness. And at the beginning of our study of this book, it looks like the romance is going to end with a crushing divorce. Pick up in verse four. And the Lord said to him, Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put it into the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Verse eight, when she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. In the beginning of this story, the fruit of this romance between Hosea and Gomer is fruit that's really tragic. She gives birth to three children. The first child is described as being fathered by Hosea. The second two children, it's intentionally ambiguous. It doesn't say that she conceived with Hosea. It simply says that she gave birth to these children. We don't know who the father of these children are. And these three children represent in some really tragic ways the fruit of God's people continually turning from God in unfaithfulness. These children represent judgment. They represent justice. And they represent those things with the tragic names that God commands Hosea to name them. The first child is named Jezreel. And I'm no Old Testament scholar, and there's probably a not, not a lot of Old Testament scholars in our book, in our church. Uh, so I had to dig in, like, why does that name have any significance? And that name Jezreel is connected to a place. It's connected to a place of massive bloodshed that was driven by human greed and ambition. Repeatedly in Jezreel, people slayed other people to get ahead. It was a place of iniquity. It was a place where the very dirt was crying out to God for justice. So when God tells him to name this kid Jezreel, he's saying, hey, the fruit of your constant violence and injustice and murder is gonna be judgment. The second child is named No Mercy because repeatedly throughout the story, the children of Israel have been turning on God and God's been turning to them in mercy. In fact, after the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, it's called the Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery. He's taken them to the promised land before they even get very far outside of Egypt. They actually make a replacement God to Yahweh out of their jewelry. 
They worship a golden calf. They have an orgy in the midst of the desert. They get drunk and they worship this false God. And here's what they say tragically. They say, this is the one that delivered us from slavery in Egypt. This cow that we made, this is what saved us. This is what's gonna be our security and our rescue. God comes to them and he certainly brings punishment, but even in the midst of the punishment, he declares mercy. The story of God and his people from the beginning has been one of rebellion and resistance and God pursuing with mercy. And now God's saying, I think maybe I've had enough. Name this daughter, no mercy. I've gotten to the end of my patience. And then this final child maybe the worst name of all, call his name, not my people for you are not my people and I am not your God. Just think of the weight of that. The very identity of Israel was found in God. What made Israel Israel? It was that God chose them, not because they were more moral, not because they were special, not because they were more wealthy or more powerful than any other nation, simply as an act of grace. God chose Israel And he called them his people to be a light to the nations and to actually bring about his promises of redemption that he made all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible. And now God says something that would have caused all of them to sit up, hopefully with terror. He's saying, hey, you know the thing that separates you, that makes you special, the thing that's been the unique mark of your history, that you're my people? Well, you're not gonna be my people anymore. So let's stop here for just a second. It seems like the romance of God and his people ends in a divorce. And and I just want to say clearly, publicly, anybody in our church that experienced the kind of infidelity, abandonment, and abuse that God has experienced at the hands of his people, we would plead with you to walk away from that marriage. We would help you walk away from that marriage. Scripture is really clear that in the case of, of adultery, infidelity, abandonment, and abuse, that you're not bound to stay in that relationship. You're free to walk away from that relationship. And if we were giving God relationship advice, if God came to us and over a cup of coffee was like, what do I do with my bride? I love her, but here's how she's cheated on me. Here's how she's turned from me. Here's how she's rejected me. If we were giving God relationship advice, we would probably say, you've done everything you can do. It's time to get out. I think it's important in this moment for us to not rush ahead. If you know the story of Hosea or the story of the Bible to give Pat Sunday school answers in this story, what you see is God's pain. You see God's sorrow. You see God's longing. You see that God actually like somehow set his affection on his people and they became the apple of his eye. They became his treasure and his delight in all the earth. He placed his affection on them. And now after years of running, you see in the book of Hosea, the heart of God crying out, what do I do? What do I do? Because I love them but they don't love me. I want them, but they don't want me. And if we were given that relationship advice to a friend that had gone through all this, we would rightly say, man, it's time to go. Let's help you get out of this. But God's so different than us. He's so different than us. 
What he does here, starting in verse 10, is the opposite of what anybody would expect him to do. Coming out of the tragedy of those three children being named in light of judgment, God is going to give hope. He's going to give beauty. And this thread of hope is going to surpass the thread of tragedy throughout this whole book. This is going to be a book where we're going to feel the tragedy of God's romance with his people, but we're going to feel the hope of God's redeeming love for his people. Starting in verse 10, let me read it to you. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Hey, all of the judgment that God proclaims that's going to come for them, the judgment that's partially going to come when the Assyrians invade and the northern kingdom disappears forever, the judgment they're going to feel. Here's what God's saying. In the midst of the judgment, I'm actually going to keep my promise to you that I made to Abraham so long ago that I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I'll multiply you and bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God's saying, you know what? I actually am going to keep my word, even though you don't keep your word. I'm going to maintain my fidelity, even though you don't maintain your fidelity. And shockingly, what God says in this text is in the very place of judgment, in the very place of judgment, in the very place where wrath and justice is the most clear In the very place of judgment, God's going to flip that judgment. And instead of the judgment getting the last word, God's mercy and kindness is going to shine through. And in the very place of the divorce, there's going to be an adoption. In the very place of the severing of relationship, there's going to be a reuniting of relationship. How does this happen? How is this possible? What do you do with the tension between a God who's holy and just? God's not a senile husband who's going to just wink at repeated infidelity. God's a holy God. What does God do with his holiness? What does he do with his hatred of sin? And at the same time, what does he do with the depth of his compassion and affection for his people? Well, friends, this head that they're going to be gathered under is the one that's been promised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He's the one that God said would come through Eve's line who would crush the head of the serpent. He's the one who he prophesied would be the seed of Abraham who would bring God's blessing to the Gentiles. He's the one that God said would be the son of David who would not be like David, his dad, who was a sinful, wicked king at times. He would be a perfect king with a perfect kingdom. He is the one that Isaiah prophesied would be the prince of peace who would come to bring the end to the darkness of sin and death. Jesus was born in the fullness of time as the answer to God's great dilemma, his justice and his compassion for his people. Jesus is the one that came in the fullness of time and Jesus could rightly be called like Gomer's first child, Jezreel. Jezreel was the place of bloodshed. It was the place of violence. It was the place of human 
capacity for doing harm to other human beings. Jesus was born and he went to a place called Golgotha. There was a place of bloodshed. Jesus could be called Jezreel as the representative of Israel and new humanity as the new Adam. Jesus was slaughtered in the place of injustice the ambitions of Herod and the ambitions of Pilate and the ambitions of the high priest, the same kind of ambitions that led to the bloodshed at Jezreel that God condemns, those same kind of ambitions were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus and God was working in it to make the very place of judgment become a place of mercy. Jesus could rightly be called no mercy. He bore the full weight of our sin. He was cut off for us. Jesus could rightly be called, not my people. Scripture says he was rejected, forsaken, and cut off. And in the midst of all of that suffering and all of that loss, in the midst of Jesus being the one that identifies with the people of God so closely and so clearly that he's willing to take their infidelities on himself and take their righteous severing from God on himself. In the midst of Jesus being willing to do that, God works a great miracle in the place of judgment. The mercy of God shows up. The people that were called not by people get called the children of the living God. The ones that were no mercy get nothing but mercy. The ones who should have been divorced permanently receive a husband named Jesus who's the perfect bridegroom who pursues to the very last day and finishes the good work he started. Let me read to you from Ray Ortland's excellent book, God's Unfaithful Wife. He writes, pastorally, the biblical story lifts up before us a vision of God as our lover. The gospel is not an imperialistic human philosophy making overrated universal claims. The gospel sounds the voice of our husband who has proven his love for us and who calls for our undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look into the universe, Ultimate reality is not a cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There's a God above all with love in his eyes for us and infinite joy to offer us. And he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, angry, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with a love which cleanses our lives of all spiritual whoredom. This is what we're going to look at for the next eight weeks. This is not going to be a sermon series about cleaning yourself up and making yourself presentable to God. This is not going to be a to-do list of all the ways in which you need to adjust your own behavior apart from the work of God to be faithful to God. This is going to be a book about God's faithfulness in Jesus. It's going to be a book about how God pursues and God transforms and God changes and how God's wanting to work in your life and work in our church to create in us more covenant fidelity to the husband that loves us and purchased us. This is going to be a book that exposes idols, not because God wants to bereave you of joy, but this is going to be a book that exposes idols because God won't let you, he won't let you settle 
for silly, fake, knockoff lovers that can't satisfy your soul.